a number of medical serial killers. And not, first of all, they crave the, the, the power and control over an individual because many times in their life, they didn't have that power and control. So here's an opportunity for them to get back. Also, a number of them seem to exhibit something uh, called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Also, now the new term is factitious disorder. And what it is, is basically an example of this. There was a recently a, a, a prosecution of a, a woman for this, where a mother may intentionally harm a child, bring that child into the emergency room to show what a caring parent they are, so they could get all this attention from the staff. Oh, what a caring parent she is. You know, she cares so much about this child. So what they will do is they will intentionally harm a patient, cause a code, and then show off to the staff what a fantastic nurse they are. All right. One of, one of my uh, serial killers, Kristen Gilbert, she did that all the time. And even the doctors on the staff would say, you know, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She's excellent when it comes to a code. She starts barking orders out to the young interns who are scared shitless, who have never done anything like this before. She's phenomenal. And when you look at many of their evaluations, they're like, okay, nurses, except when it comes to a code. That's when they're outstanding. And we have seen this throughout the world, including this nurse in Germany that killed over 100 people. That was his thing. We actually referred to... Welcome to Learn or Be Learned. We either learn from others or others learn from us. The former is able to help us become a better, faster you. Follow me weekly as I dig up stories like a true anthropologist would on one of the three series called Guest Conversations, Book Applications, or My Small Talk Explorations. I'm your host, Shiva Danishaker, and let's talk. All right, welcome back, friends. So today I'm here with former special agent Bruce Sackman, and he's got some pretty interesting stories on investigating medical-related serial killers. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. <laughs> so what, how did you get into a field like that? Well, it's certainly nothing that I planned on growing up. Right. <laughs> Just something that sort of happened. I'll tell a little bit about my background. I was the special agent in charge of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. So I was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving the VA, the Veterans Hospital System from West Virginia to Maine. Okay. And I had an uh, entire smorgasbord, if you will, of cases to pick and choose from involving hospitals, whether it be uh, drug diversion, theft of hospital supplies, mm -hmm. um, bribery cases from contractors that wanted to do business in the hospital. So I had a, a complete inventory of cases, but I never actually had a case involving a physician accused of murdering one of his patients. Mm -hmm. Until one day I get a call from the chief of psychiatry at the Northport VA out on Long Island. And she says, uh, you know, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but we actually have a physician working here. And there's a news report that he spent time in prison 
for poisoning his co-workers. Now, I didn't think that in the United States of America, you could be convicted of poisoning people, come out of prison and become a physician, particularly one working for the federal government and treating our nation's heroes. But I was wrong because that is exactly what happened. Wow. And that's what started me on this um, journey, if you will, to investigate and help prosecute medical professionals who murder their patients. And that one particular case involved a physician by the name of Dr. Michael Swango. And when Swango was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as 00 Swango licensed to kill because they even thought at medical school that for some reason, every time he would visit a patient, sometimes later, that patient would die unexpectedly. And they even went to the dean and they said, hey, dean, you know, we don't think Dr. Swango should become uh, a doctor, you know, that he should uh, not be allowed to graduate. But the dean overruled them and Swango became a doctor. Um, He graduated a little bit later than the rest of his class. The dean felt that he should stay another six months and kind of finish up some of the things uh, that he wasn't doing properly. But he did graduate and he went to Ohio State University. At Ohio State University, there was a young gymnast, a student by the name of Cynthia McGee, who got in a car accident with another student. She was actually improving until she gets a visit from Michael Swango, and then she dies unexpectedly. But Michael Swango wasn't actually accused of that crime. You see, um, the, the other student who hit her with his car, he got charged with vehicular homicide, but he didn't kill Cynthia McGee. It was actually Swango. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, there are all these suspicious deaths and patients are dying unexpectedly, but they can't prove that Swango was actually responsible, but they decide that Swango shouldn't be working there anymore. And then Swango returns to his first love, which was being an EMT, an emergency medical technician. And he's doing a good job there, actually. And then one day he uh, invites his coworkers in for some donuts. Mm-hmm. And they eat the donuts. And that night they all go home and they're all sick. And Swango's calling them up and he's saying, Tell me all your symptoms. Tell me everything that happened to you. I'm very interested in knowing everything that happened to you. Because what he was doing, he was actually reliving the excitement of poisoning the people twice. Once when he put the poison on the donuts and the second time to hear their reaction. Well, these EMTs are not stupid and they suspected something. A couple of weeks later, Swango comes in with some iced tea. He says, hey, guys, I got some iced tea for everybody. And they say, well, well just, just leave it there. We'll, we'll try it again later. And they have the iced tea tested, and it's loaded with arsenic. And they call the police, and the police do an excellent job. They went to Swango's home. They found poisons. They found books on poisons. And Swango um, gets arrested, and he gets sentenced to three years in jail for poisoning his coworkers. And like I said earlier, I didn't think that you could spend time in jail for poisoning your coworkers and come out and be a physician again. 
but that is exactly what happened. You see, you know, being a sociopath, a psychopath, he was a very, very convincing liar. And when he got out of jail, he started to forge all sorts of documents. He forged documents to show that he only did six months in jail for a barroom brawl. He forged documents to show that the governor of the state had actually restored his civil rights. And next thing you know, he's a doctor again. And he's working out on the West Coast and he's actually doing a pretty good job. And uh, he meets this young nurse and they get engaged and everything is beautiful until the story comes out that he had spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. And then everything goes to hell. Everything goes to hell. Mm -hmm. And the fiance, her name is Kristen Kinney. She flies back to Virginia where her parents are. And she says, you know, when I was living with Michael, I'm so disappointed. I really love this guy. Then I heard this story. But, you know, I was getting headaches. I was getting headaches when I was living with him. But the headaches seem to be gone now. Then all of a sudden, who rings the doorbell? But it's Michael Swango, and he's very charming, and he gets his way back into her life. She starts getting the headaches again. Then one day, she goes to the park. She takes out a gun, and she blows her brains out. Well, you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, actually, you can, because even though the body was cremated, the family kept a lock of her hair, and we tested the hair. And it was loaded with arsenic. So Swango was actually even poisoning his own fiance. Well, to make a long story short, next thing you know, he winds up in uh, on Long Island in my neighborhood. And he's doing an, uh, a residency. And guess in, in what area? In psychiatry. So that meant that he had to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists and convince them that he should be in the program, which he did, in spite of the fact. Wow. And this was at Stony Brook University, which has a teaching arrangement with the VA hospital in Northport. So after I, I get this phone call from the chief of psychiatry, I said, I have to meet this guy. I have to meet this guy. So I grab one of my agents and we hop in the car and we drive out to Northport. And this guy, Swango, is a handsome, charming. You know what? If if you didn't know better, and if your daughter had brought him home, you'd say, What a great catch. This guy's a handsome ex-Marine doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow. <laughs> this <laughs> right. is really terrific. Okay. And he starts giving me that same story, you know, uh, the barroom brawl story, the whole thing. Well, the next thing you know, um, so I start pressuring him a little bit. I ask him for permission to search his room. And that's when his attitude completely changes. And we have to leave. And I didn't have enough probable cause for a search warrant because we didn't have any evidence that he committed any crimes out at Northport. Next thing you know, he's gone. So where does Swango go? He goes to Zimbabwe, Africa. And when he's in Africa, he kills women and children and pregnant women. And he was actually on his way to Saudi Arabia, but he had to come back to the United States to get his passport renewed. And that's when he was arrested, but not for murder. 
because we didn't have any evidence that he murdered anybody. All right. But for what was every, and still is, every federal agent's favorite crime, lying to the government. If you lie on your paperwork to the government, if you lie when you talk to a government agency, you're guilty of the crime of false statements and you go to jail. So he got sentenced to jail, and that gave us a two-year window to try to figure out if he murdered anybody. Now, like I said earlier, I had never done a case like this before in my life. Mm -hmm. A lot of white-collar crime cases and drug diversion cases, but never, ever did a homicide. And my boss says, well, look, don't worry, Bruce, we're going to actually hook you up with somebody. And they hooked me up with a a forensic pathologist named Dr. Michael Bodden. Now, I don't know if you remember that name, because anytime there's a high profile murder, he seems to be one of the pathologists there. All right. He actually had a show on TV um, uh, called Autopsy uh, on HBO a number of years ago. So he says, uh, don't worry, Bruce. He says, I'm going to teach you how to do this. All right, well, how do we do this? I've never done this before. He says, well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to gather up all the medical records of all the patients that were at the Northport VA when Swango was there. Luckily, he wasn't there that long. And then we're going to assemble a team. And this team is going to consist of, well, himself as the forensic pathologist, a toxicologist that actually has to test or do all the chemical testing, a physician that's an expert in chart review. He could look at charts and make a determination if it's reasonable that the patient had expired when they did from their natural disease processes, or maybe there doesn't seem to be any reason why that patient expired when they did. And a team of forensic nurses, which at that time was a relatively new profession of nurses that are trained in both forensic science and nursing, and they were phenomenal. They were phenomenal. So the team narrowed it down to about six patients that we thought their deaths looked suspicious. Now, Natural death was explained to me like this uh, by Michael Bonney. He says, Bruce, natural death is if you, it's like shedding off a fan and the blades gradually, gradually slow down. But in this case, it's like turning off a light bulb. The people are bright one minute and dark the next. And we can't understand exactly why that happened, because there doesn't seem to be anything in their natural disease history that would indicate or in the charts that will indicate that they were near death. Right. And if you ever had a loved one in, in the in the hospital that was near death, I mean, you kind of know the family, you know, the family knows, the nurses knows, but these deaths were totally unexpected. Okay, so what do we do next? Well, the next thing we have to do is we have to go to the cemeteries and exhume the bodies. I had never done anything like this before in my life. Mm-hmm. First thing we do is we go to the families and we tell the families what we're going to do. Even though we had a court order, we asked them for permission to exhume their bodies. And the families were terrific. Sometimes they would actually want to be there uh, when we exhume the bodies. 
So the next thing you know, I, I find myself at, at a cemetery with a backhoe and it's digging up the ground and it's pulling the coffin up from the ground. And then I see Michael Bott and he jumps into the gravesite and he takes soil samples. And I said, what are you doing? He says, well, we have to test to see if there's arsenic in the soil. Because if there's arsenic in the soil and we find arsenic in the body, the defense is going to say, well, the reason why you found arsenic in the body is it just kind of creeped in from the soil, you know, from the, the water and everything got wet in, it just kind of creeped in. So then I find myself at the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office um, involved in autopsies. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> I can tell you, it takes... Some I was fine with it. Some people are not, are, are not so fine with it. You know, it, it depends on the individual. And then the next thing you know, Michael Bodden and, and, and the medical examiner from Suffolk County, they do this Y incision and they're co- cutting open the body. And they're taking out, uh, Michael Bodden like takes out the heart and he says, Bruce, you see this heart? This guy didn't have heart disease, as it says on the death certificate. There's nothing wrong with this heart. There's some other reason why this person expired when they did, not what the death certificate says. And in fact, over the years that I've learned that you can't really rely on death certificates. You know, I always thought that death certificates were signed by the treating physician, and that was the best scientific cause knowledge that determined that was the cause of death. It's not really true at all. Um, in fact, there's a famous there's a famous story about um, Staten Island, which is one of the five boroughs of New York. You know, um, there were all sorts of statistics to show that the death rate in Staten Island from myocardial infarction, a heart disease, was incredibly high. People couldn't understand it. They said maybe it's this pollution from Jersey that's blowing over and killing everybody in Staten Island. But the answer was um, the death certificates were fraudulent, that the funeral parlors, in a hurry to bury these people, actually forged the names of physicians on the death certificates and had no idea what the cause of death was. So they put down some catch-all like heart disease. And that's why there were so many there. So I learned not to rely on the death certificates. And even over the years, other cases that I've had, even when we were able to prove homicide, the local medical examiner or coroner was very reluctant to change the death certificates. They just, for some reason. That's interesting. All right. So here we are, and we exhumed a number of bodies, and we went through this. And the lab made a determination that there were two substances in these bodies that shouldn't have been there. One of them is something called succinylcholine. Succinylcholine is a paralytic they use in the hospital if they want to put a tube down you. Mm -hmm. It actually paralyzes you. There was no medical reason for succinylcholine to be in the bodies of these people. Right. And of course, uh, Swango had access to that. And the other one was epinephrine, which is adrenaline, which will speed up your heart. And if you shouldn't have it, and if it's not controlled properly, you're dead. So Swango's about to get out of jail, and he thinks he's just going to hop on the plane and go to Saudi Arabia. Well, not so fast, okay? 
because not only did we indict him for a number of murders, but the government of Zimbabwe had charged him with a number of murders as well. And for the first time, we kind of lucked out. The United States entered into an extradition treaty with Zimbabwe. So we told Swango, look, if you go to trial, and even if by some chance you should win, all we're going to do is put you on a plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe, where they have an arrest warrant for you for killing a number of women and children and pregnant women. Well, I think that helped convince him to plead guilty really fast, which he did. And then, uh, so he pled guilty not only to murdering a a number of the the veterans at the VA hospital, but also uh, later he pled guilty to killing that uh, Cynthia McGee, the student in Ohio State University. So he pled guilty to that as well. And the interesting thing is that he's now in a supermax federal penitentiary. in Florence, Colorado, and he'll never, ever, ever get out, ever. So that was the first case, the first case that I had that kind of brought me to this world of medical serial killers. And next thing you know, I get invited into these other cases. And in my book, Behind the Murder Curtain, I, I go into that in great detail, including a nurse in Massachusetts that murdered about 30 people, There's a a nurse in Columbia, Missouri, who allegedly murdered a number of people. There's a doctor in Albany who put people into research that shouldn't have been there and murdered them. So that's what got me started in this world of medical serial killers. And now I talk to people all over the world. I've worked with the German police on a case of a nurse that involved the murdering of over 100 patients. And, you know, the big difference between a a medical serial killer and we'll say a traditional serial killer are the numbers. Because medical serial killers, I'd say the average kills somewhere between 30 and 40 people, where your traditional serial killer may be six or seven people. I mean, I know there are outliers to that. And the reason is, well, why is that? You know, why are medical serial killers so successful? Um, and, and the answer is, and I should, I should always preface my remarks by saying this, you know, the overwhelming majority of healthcare professionals are the most honest, dedicated people on the planet. I mean, they actually take an oath to save lives and they do save lives. Right. In fact, the last hospital I worked in. They were performing miracles every day. I mean, I just couldn't believe the fantastic work they were doing. So nobody wants to believe that somebody in that environment is intentionally taking lives. I mean, they're working with a group of people who have dedicated themselves to saving lives. Who's going to want to believe that somebody in that team is intentionally taking lives. So that's the first thing, that the co-workers have a very, very tough time of actually believing that someone is intentionally taking them. And the next thing is the role of management. Look, if you're a hospital director, do you want the word to get out that somebody on your staff is intentionally murdering patients? 
I mean, that's the last thing in the world, the last thing in the world that, that anybody would ever want as a manager. All right. And in fact, there are numerous examples of how hospital managers would, when concerned nurses and doctors would go to them, they would poo-poo it and say, you know, go back. You don't have enough evidence. We're not interested in And just hoping and saying a little prayer that that employee would move on to the next hospital and then move on to the next hospital and then move on to the next hospital. And that's why so many of these medical serial killers not only kill in one hospital, but have killed in a number of hospitals. Perhaps the greatest example of that is this nurse Cullen, who from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, went to about nine different hospitals. And the first hospital who suspected something never said anything to the second hospital, who never said anything to the third hospital. But one thing good has come from all of this, and that's happened actually in Germany. In Germany, this nurse that admitted to killing over 100 patients, but we think he actually killed more like 300 patients. The managers who suspected something, for the first time ever, they've been criminally charged with aiding and abetting the murders because they knew something and covered it up and allowed that nurse to go on to another hospital. Now, whether they get convicted or not, I don't know. We'll see. It's still ongoing, all right? But that's the very, very first time. Look, it's also very easy to commit a murder in hospitals because, for one, death is a common everyday occurrence, right? I mean, you know, people die in the hospital all the time, in hospital, in in nursing homes. Um, Death is a very common occurrence. And also, hospitals are a place where the police really don't want to go in and investigate, all right? First of all, most cops don't become cops because we're good in science, chemistry, and biology, okay? That's why we didn't choose that field of medicine and nursing. So we're very easily intimidated, not only by the science, all right, but we're also intimidated by the law because they have this HIPAA law, this Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and what documents can I get with a subpoena? What documents can I get without a subpoena? It gets very, very confusing. So, you know, we don't really want to do investigations in hospital. And then lastly, what has happened throughout the world is that the management will say to the police, um, you know, thank you very much for your concerns, officer, but we actually did our own internal investigation and we determined that all the patients expired as a direct result of their disease, natural disease processes. You know, many of them are in the ICU. Many of them are sort of near death themselves. So that's why they expired. It had nothing to do with a serial killer. Now, if you want to continue the investigation, go ahead. But here's a big report showing all the work we did to show that these people died from natural causes. And most police departments will just kind of walk away from it at that point. That's very crazy because, like you said, they take the oath. And you would least expect it in a hospital setting, especially because of the vulnerability aspect, right? I spoke with 
this professor at Emory once. Uh, his name is Dr. Melvin Connor, and he does med- medical anthropology and stuff, and he studies the culture of uh, medical uh, fields and hospitals. And he talks about how there's a sense of vulnerability, especially patients in a hospital because they're wearing a gown. They have to tie it from the back. It's it's like very symbolic of vulnerability. And you would least suspect when you go to a hospital that someone has malintentions, especially after taking oath. So that kind of makes me want to ask you, how did you get inside their shoes or, you know, how'd you walk in their shoes to see, you know, to solve this case, you kind of have to think from their perspective, which is quite frankly, maybe an unorthodox perspective, obviously. So how do you think like that to catch someone like that? Well, that's an interesting question. You know what? Most of the time, these allegations surface from uh, the honest and courageous employees who suspect something. Otherwise, I'm employees who suspect something. Otherwise, I mean, we we would never know, Mm -hmm. you know. So after they usually get turned down by management and then they come to us and they kind of lay out what they think has happened. And there are some common red flags that, um, and I want to say it's not like one size fits all. Right. Because many medical serial killers have different backgrounds and different histories and all. But there are a couple of things that are common among a number, a number of medical serial killers. And no, first of all, they crave the, the, the power and control over an individual because many times in their life, they didn't have that power and control. Mm-hmm. So here's an opportunity for them to get back. Also, a number of them seem to exhibit something uh, called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Also, now the new term is factitious disorder. And what it is, is basically an example of this. There was a recently a, a, a prosecution of a, a woman for this, where a mother may intentionally harm a child, bring that child into the emergency room to show what a caring parent they are, so they could get all this attention from the staff. Oh, what a caring parent she is. You know, she cares so much about this child. So what they will do is they will intentionally harm a patient, cause a code, and then show off to the staff what a fantastic nurse they are, all right? One of one of my uh, serial killers, Kristen Gilbert, she did that all the time. And even the doctors on the staff would say, you know, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She's excellent when it comes to a code. She starts barking orders out to the young interns who are scared shitless, who have never done anything like this before. She's phenomenal. And when you look at many of their evaluations, they're like, okay, nurses, except when it comes to a code, that's when they're outstanding. And we have seen this throughout the world, including this nurse in Germany that killed over 100 people. That was his thing. We actually referred to them as code junkies because they crave the excitement of a code and an opportunity to show off to the staff what wonderful caregivers they are. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, though, I want, not everyone <laughs> is like that, but a number of them are like that. And there are other red flags that we get interested in. And then we start to see some commonalities. But I must say, 
it's it's not universal across the board at all. I mean, some sometimes we've had cases of nurses that were good until they got involved with drugs. Mm-hmm. We've had cases that were nurse where a, a nurse was good until she got involved with another nurse, and then um, it became a jealousy, almost a sexual thing. I mean, there are different reasons throughout the world, but a number of them do seem to suffer, if that's the right word, from this Munchausen syndrome by proxy. But I'll tell you something that's universal. They couldn't give a shit about the patients. They don't care about the patients. It's what the excitement of the event does for them. Right. There's a famous serial killer, medical serial killer named Donald Harvey. And Donald Harvey is quoted as saying, well, after I killed the first 15 and nobody even questioned me about it. Now, could you imagine that? You kill 15 people and nobody even questions you about it. He says, I started to think I was actually ordained by God himself to do this. Wow. Not so crazy <laughs> if you kill 15 people and nobody even questions <laughs> you, you know? Yeah, you so, feel power. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's power and, and, and control. Right. Power and control. Something many of them never had in their lives. Very, very interesting to go into the psychology yeah. of, of these people. But it's not the same for every one of them. Definitely not. Especially charismatic killers seem to be, at least in my opinion, kind of seem like one of the scariest because they let your guard down because they're charismatic they have a way with their words and you end up trusting someone who obviously shouldn't be trusted. Yes. Yes. Some of them have great bedside manners. Some of them Mm -hmm. don't. Some of them have no bedside manners (laughs) whatsoever. I mean, it really does vary from, from killer to killer, but um, they're out there. I mean, they're two ongoing now that I, I I'm, I'm watching. One of them is in Canada, in Ottawa. There's a doctor there who uh, the police are actively investigating for a, a number of murders. And then there's one in Ohio involving a doctor who used fentanyl to uh, overdose and kill patients. Now, this is interesting because these patients were in the ICU, and uh, which is very common where a number of the victims are, you know, because death is not totally unexpected. And these people were near death, and his argument is that um, because they were near death, I guess he had the right to order an exorbitant amount of fentanyl, way higher than any other physician would ever order, uh, which resulted in their deaths and their suffering. Now, I had a case... I had a case in Rhode Island involving a doctor who intentionally gave an overdose of morphine to a patient that was near death. He said, well, I think this patient lived long enough and he's suffering and I'm just going to end it. And the nurse said, what the hell are you doing? You're not God. You just can't make that decision, you know? And he did it anyway. And uh, the family got wind of it and they sued. And they won. But the question is, did he murder someone? Look, if you have, let's say you have six hours to live. Mm-hmm. And I'm the doctor and I decide to end your life right now, not to give you those six hours. Did I commit murder? Well, I think so. You know, 
So this is what happened. So we got all the information and we were able to determine that that overdose of morphine that doctor gave resulted in the death of that patient. Maybe he would have lived another three hours, two hours a day. Maybe he would have died in 20 minutes. I don't know. But one thing I do know, that is he died as a result of that overdose of morphine. And this was at a VA hospital. So we went, and this story is in the book, and uh, we went to the United States attorney and she declined to prosecute. And we even had a medical ethicist from Harvard on our side saying, this guy had no right to do this. The family didn't want it to happen. You know, nobody wanted it to happen but him. So I actually appealed the case to the main justice in Washington, D.C. I appealed her decision not to prosecute. And they came down and they said, well, Bruce, we understand your argument, but we're not going to overrule the U.S. attorney. And that was it. So even though there were civil liabilities involved here, there was no criminal liability, which I was very, very disappointed with because... I felt that uh, no one has the right to shorten someone's life. Now, I'll put it to you this way. Let's say there's a patient that's in really severe pain, all right? Right. And the family wants this to end. And the patient had even went, and the patient was able to articulate, wanted it to end. So there's a, a board of medical professionals who discuss this case, and they feel that there's no future cause for this patient, and he's just suffering, and his life should be terminated. I'm fine with that. I am fine with that, okay? But for one individual to take it upon himself without consulting either the patient, the family, right, playing the God. staff, just to do it himself, that to me is a crime. Now, right. we'll see what happens in Ohio. I'm very anxious to see what happens in Ohio. Because he didn't do it to one patient, like my doctor in Rhode Island. He did it to about 14 patients. In fact, I think something like 30 patients have sued the hospital over this. Right. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that one. But most of the cases around the world have nothing to do with pain and suffering. Oh, sometimes they'll, they'll articulate that. But at the end of the day, as a matter of fact, many of these patients are actually improving. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they die unexpectedly. So wow. this case in Ohio, we're going to watch and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with it. Right. And it seems like probably in your line of work, at least, you know, you're kind of retired now, but when you were doing this all the time, it seems like it's a common occurrence. How often do you actually see something like this happen? Well, one of my colleagues has um, studied this throughout uh, the, the recent history, and she's identified about 170 of these cases throughout the world um, as far back as, as she could search. So it's very uncommon, but what scares me is how much of this is unreported. I mean, how much yeah. of this don't we know? I mean, how many people are taken out in, in nursing homes or in hospice care or uh, even in hospitals that we don't even know. Remember, most of these people don't even get identified 
until they kill a number of people. So if you kill one or two people, the chances are they may not even be identified. Right. I mean, the most recent VA case in West Virginia, I think there were the seven or eight victims uh, that 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 she killed. All right, with a um, with an overdose of insulin. Insulin is also a very common drug that's used throughout the world. But look, it didn't happen after the first case or the second case. It happened after seven or eight cases that's identified. And that's what I find very scary, is that I don't know how many of these matters are unreported, have just gone unreported. I have no idea. and I don't think anybody has any yeah. idea. Does it make you more skeptical uh, ever when you go, if you have to have someone you know or do you have to visit a hospital? No, you know, not really, because even though I spent the career arresting doctors and nurses, I know that the overwhelming majority of them are just the finest salt of the earth, just fantastic people, right? dedicated to saving lives. I mean, these people are such outliers, the one that I've been involved with, you know, but the overwhelming majority of them... And again, this is how we find out about the cases. We find out about the cases from the honest, dedicated ones who really sometimes put their own careers on the line just to make these allegations. It takes a lot of courage. But again, the overwhelming 99.9% of them are just the most trustful and nicest people really you'd ever want to deal with. What what are some other red flags that because you mentioned a couple right like a couple red flags here and there what are some red flags that you see with people that are you know harming people in the medical field Yeah well I'll give you I'll give you uh, I'll go through some of them Yeah you know just to kind of give you an idea um, I guess you know what they all sort of start out like this it's it like every time Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Nurse Bruce takes a week off, the death rate goes down. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that Nurse Bruce is a serial killer? Well, of course not. Maybe there are legitimate reasons for that. Maybe Bruce has the most difficult cases. You know, maybe he has the sickest patients. I mean, there may be a lot of reasons for that, but that's how they usually start throughout the world. So the question is how many people have to die before yeah. people start that's, know, that's what I was going to say, yeah. Also, we find out that many times these um, these killers prefer to work like the what they call, pardon the pun, the graveyard shift at 3 o'clock in the morning where there's very little supervision, practically no family is around, and that gives them an opportunity to do the things that they have to do. Also, we find out that they, they seem to be very accurate in predicting somebody's death. You know, they say, well, you see this uh, this patient, Bruce, over here. Um, you know, and I don't think he's going to last the night. I say, why? Uh, we, don't, we don't see any reason. Well, I don't know. You know, I just have a feeling. I don't like the way he looks or something. And guess what happens to Nurse Bruce that night? Yeah. <laughs> he actually expires. So they seem to be... Uh, they have this uncommon ability to predict when a, a, a patient is going to die. And again, the deaths are not suspected by the family or the staff, okay? Because 
many times the patients are actually improving and the family will go on vacation only to get this shocking call from the hospital that dad or mom died unexpectedly. And that is a big, big red flag on these cases, all right? Yeah. And then the death certificates, I say, they always have some kind of catch-all like myocardial infarction or heart disease or something like that. The hospital will do this initial review and they will find that the patient expired from his natural disease processes, all right? And you know what's interesting is that the hospital will often even allow the employee to continue working even when they're under suspicion, which I find kind of shocking, but they're so afraid of getting sued by the employee because they don't have enough proof. So they just allow them to go there. And then what happens is that eventually the co-workers will report it to law enforcement because they're tired of the management turning them down. And there's a high probability, look, that there's not going to be any witnesses to these crimes because at three o'clock in the morning, I could take that curtain and put that curtain behind me and the patient and there's really nobody there and there aren't going to be any cameras. So who's going to really be able to see what I do? You know, the best thing we'll get is that they could say, well, I saw Nurse Bruce go into the room with that patient do something, and about a half hour later, something happened to that patient, and nobody else went in that room. That's about the best it's going to actually get. Well, did you actually see Bruce kill that patient? Well, no, I didn't actually see him, but that's the way it got. Right. right. And there are so many drugs that are available in the hospital, particularly on the crash cart, Mm -hmm. that I could use to kill somebody some of which is still untraceable, even with today's modern toxicology, particularly in embalmed tissue, because many times the police won't come until the patients are buried, you know? And uh, so there's like no crime scene, like you'll see like in, in, you know, CSI, there's no crime scene because the patient has, has left the hospital and has been buried maybe months ago. Right. So you can imagine how hard that is to actually do that. I mean, if you get lucky, and most of the time they don't get lucky, if it's a recent death, then they may have syringes and the IV lines and the feeding tubes, but that's very rare. You know, before electronic medical records, it was interesting in a number of cases throughout the world, um, what was missing from the patient's files were these EKG strips. Mm -hmm. Because it seemed that the EKG strip was sort of like a roadmap. And they could see, well, patient Bruce is doing okay, okay. Well, look what happened at this hour. All of a sudden, something happened. But those EKG strips were all removed by the killer. Pretty interesting, huh? Pretty interesting. <laughs> and we find that almost all of them, like I say, perform best in emergency situations. You know, those code junkies, they just love the excitement of the code. Some of them, not all, some of them could be very uh, charming, as you pointed out, and friendly. But we find out that many of them had difficulty with their own close, close personal relationships. Like when you find out their home life, either they were divorced or they had issues or they had... Um, 
court orders preventing them from being with their spouse or something. So a number of them had those kind of issues. All right. And um, let me say, they all get good written reviews from their supervisors when it comes to codes. Mm -hmm. The rest of them, (laughs) and then when you start to do an in-depth background investigation, unfortunately, it's not done before they're hired. It's done when we suspect something. Then you start to learn about all the instances and all the problems that they've had in other employments. And that is also very, very common. So those are like some of the red flags that we've seen over the years. Um, But it's a challenge. Right. It's a very expensive investigation. It's a very time-consuming investigation. I mean, how many police departments have the resources of the federal government? These investigations cost millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. How How many police departments can get involved in something like that? Very few. And where does most of that money go? for the investigation? Like, what do they spend it on? Well, that's a good question. Um, not no, Well, first of all, you have experts. Mm-hmm. Experts cost a lot of money. You have toxicology. In the Swango case, we must have spent $100,000 on toxicology alone. Wow. All right? I mean, just the cost of these investigations, and the investigations take years. Mm-hmm. You know, Swango on and off was seven years. How many police wow. departments could afford something like that? Right. I'd say the average serial killer case, medical serial killer case, is at least two years mm-hmm. from start to finish. All right. How many police departments could afford that? Right. That's another reason why they, 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 they get away with it. Now, I'm not familiar, but I believe there's they don't keep cameras in the patients' rooms, right? No, the HIPAA law prevents that, uh-huh. with the exception of some very, very, very sick patients where they have to be monitored like 24-7. Right. But other than that, no, no, it's against the HIPAA privacy rule. So the best thing you could see is a hallway camera. So you could see Nurse Bruce walk into the patient's room, but there's not going to be any camera to see what Nurse Bruce is doing in there. Right. That- there's not going to be any camera. So in your opinion, do you believe that there should be that level of privacy that everyone is owed? Or do you think safety might be more important in cases like that? It's the safety versus privacy argument, but I'm very curious to hear what you think. Yeah. Um, you know, I understand the privacy. Mm-hmm. I really do understand the privacy. Look, who would want a camera watching you 24-7? Yeah. Right. So I, I get it. I, I, I understand that. And I, I understand the privacy because, you know, when there's a camera, then there's recordings. And what happens to the recordings? And where do these recordings wind up? Are you going to have a bad employee? Let's, 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 let's say you're, you're a celebrity mm-hmm. and there's a camera in your room. And uh, all of a sudden, I've got pictures of a celebrity mm-hmm. in the hospital. So, you know what? I could do something terrible with those pictures. I mean, not only blackmail, but I could post them on the internet or God knows what. So I understand I understand the, the need for privacy. Right. I, really I think it would be a good idea, maybe, is if they had cameras, but you had the choice to 
somehow the mechanism would like cover up the camera completely like one of those cameras in the wall and if you didn't want it then you just like shut it out but for people that wanted more safety over privacy they had the option yeah. i think that'd be kind of interesting you know, people look people have a lot of personal also a lot of personal conversations mm -hmm. you know i mean i mean i get it i i understand mm -hmm. it it's not a simple question to answer no not at all it's, it's really not mm -hmm. so i guess to wrap up this uh episode what is one key i mean i'm sure there's many things that you learned over the years but what is one really big takeaway that stuck with you from your career and field and things that you've learned i would say and you know people always ask me uh what, what can we do to prevent something like this yeah. you know um first of all prior to covid uh and i think now it's returning back to the, the old days Patients should really not be alone in the hospital as much as possible. So what I advocate is for family members or friends to try to be with the patient as much as possible and to politely underline uh, and respectfully underline question the treatment that is being administered to their friend or loved one. And to make some notes, because look, if I'm a medical serial killer and there, there are two patients there and one patient, the family never comes, nobody seems to care about him, he's by himself. And then there's another patient where the family's always there, they're taking notes, they're watching as everything. I'm not gonna pick on that yeah, one. Right. I'm gonna pick on the one that's by himself. And I've seen this throughout the world where patients are just kind of left alone, you know? I mean, they are the most vulnerable because there's, there's nobody there to question anything. So again, underlying the term respectful and politeful because these nurses and doctors have very difficult jobs mm -hmm. and they deserve all the respect we could give them. But in return, you're entitled to an answer as to exactly what they're doing and what they're giving the patient. And you keep your own notes and log. I think I think that that's a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to do. Right. Just to show the staff that the family's there, they care, and they're watching. Um, I think that would prevent a number of these uh, deaths. Right. Also, side question: Do you have you ever, or do you ever watch any like killer-related shows? Try to see if they're more accurate or not. <laughs> You know what? I was always a great fan of Columbo. Remember Columbo, uh, the Columbo television show? I don't know. That might no. be before your time. Yeah, I think oh. so. Um, yeah, you know what? I, I've watched some of the documentaries. Some of them are pretty good about the medical serial killers. I've, I've, I've watched a, a number of them, uh, and, and, and they're pretty good. Right. Have you watched yeah. You? Y-O-U, the show You on Netflix? No, I don't think I'm not familiar oh, with Oh, well, if, if you ever have time or you're curious, you should check out that show. It's about a serial killer, and it's like his thought process of why he does what he does. And it's not so much – and the way they film it is very interesting because it kind of sometimes makes you feel empathetic towards him because of the way they alter his – 
the way they show his thought process to you, right? It's it's almost he's trying to protect and he's very possessive, but he's also mm-hmm. reckless and a killer. So it's kind of like Dexter, but it's a very different, interesting show. Oh, okay. um, I think, thank you for yeah. telling me. Yeah, that. you should. Yeah, cover. I'm a fan of Dexter. I've seen all the uh, Dexter. Dexter. Yeah, I think that guy does a great job. Right, it's kind of like that a little bit. I think he, I think he does a phenomenal job as a <laughs> as a serial killer on that show. He even looks like Swango. If really? you look at Swango and if you look at him, they kind of look alike. Right, and Dexter has like a handsome, charismatic feel to yes. him too. Yeah, but yes, um, absolutely. Well, Bruce, I appreciate you being on the show. This was an awesome, very interesting talk. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it very much.